It was hard to imagine that any harm could come to a person like Christy Mira. She was the young, beautiful, popular elementary school teacher that everyone loved and adored. But on a December day in 1992, that belief was proven wrong when Christy was murdered in her Lancaster County home. Almost 30 years later, the community would once again be shocked when the mystery was finally solved. Welcome to Jane Doe, a true crime podcast where we discuss crimes committed against women across the country. I'm your host, Abigail Reese, and this week we'll be discussing the recently solved case of Christine Merrick. Born and raised in Shemokin, Pennsylvania, Christine Merrick was seen as one of the best. She was blonde and beautiful, but she was also known as being kind, cheerful, and caring. After graduating from Our Lady of Lords Regional High School in 1995, she moved to Lancaster County to attend Millersville University to become a teacher. Soon after graduating, Christy took up a teaching position at Roarstown Elementary School. To her students, Christy was the perfect teacher. She was bubbly and smart with a caring nature that came across to all of her students. She didn't teach because it was her job. Christy taught because it was her passion, which was clear to anyone who met her. Although she was seemingly open with most things, Christy was fiercely private of her social life. Neither family nor friends knew what happened in her day-to-day life outside of teaching, which would play a significant role in the investigation of her murder. It was December 21st and Christmas was only four days away. Christy was fully prepared for the holiday celebration, having wrapped individual books for each of her students and planning to go visit her family back in Schmokin. But Christy wouldn't make it to Christmas Day. On Monday, December 21st, 1992, Christy didn't show up for work. As a reliable teacher, it wasn't like her to not show up or call. It was so unusual that alarm bells immediately went up for Roarstown Elementary School principal, Harry Goodman. Already concerned for her, Goodman drove to Christy's Greenfield Estates apartment complex. When he arrived, he found the door jar, which was seen unusual for Christy. The teacher was known for lecturing her own friends and roommates for leaving doors and windows unlocked. Goodman then walked inside. By 9.22 a.m., Goodman had run to the neighbors and called the police, stating that he had found Christine Merrick's body. Inside the apartment, investigators found what appeared to be a struggle, with Christmas gifts thrown all across the floor. Christie was strangled and beaten, but police refused to comment on the full extent of her injuries. But due to the closed casket at Christie's funeral, it was believed that her injuries were extensive. At first, police wouldn't say whether or not she was sexually assaulted, but it was later released that Christie was raped and strangled with her own sweater. A wooden cutting board from the kitchen was found near Christie's body, and police believed that she used it to defend herself, only for it to be used against her. It wasn't long before the investigation ramped up and more information became public. Police revealed that Christie had been wearing her coat and gloves at the time of her attack, but her underwear, pants, and shoes had been removed, and her shirt had been pushed up. It was also revealed that she had taken such a brutal beating that her face had been distorted. Christy had suffered trauma to her neck, upper chest, back, and jaw. Neighbors recall that when Principal Goodman ran for help, he kept repeating, quote, her face, her face, end quote. DNA of the apparent killer had been found on her body and around the area. Although police interviewed, polygraphed, and dismissed dozens of persons of interest, there were only two suspects, one of which was Harry Goodman. It made sense as he had found the body, but police quickly eliminated him as a suspect. The second person they looked at was an older man who Christy had dated, but DNA tests done in 1993 also eliminated him. 
As for eyewitness testimonies, it didn't add much to the case. Someone reported seeing a man park a mid-sized car in a parking lot across the street from Christie's building and walk towards the entrance of her apartment at around 7 a.m. on the day of the crime, but there wasn't much information other than that. And even without additional information, police went ahead on the assumption that the car and the man were involved with Christie's murder. On New Year's Day, 1993, police announced that they were specifically looking for a muscular white male who was driving a 1993 Dodge Shadow Convertible, a 1990 Dodge Daytona ES, or a Toyota, a description that had been provided by multiple witnesses. Over the next few months, the description would change until they were looking for a man driving a 1987 or 1991 silver Dodge Daytona hatchback with sunshades on the rear window. In 2003, a new update came to the case. A reporter for the Lancaster Sunday News went to the police with a strange story of a phone call he received at work. A male caller told the reporter that he had a story idea that came to him the night before, when he was drinking with some friends and discussing the case of Chandra Levy, the former intern of Congressman Gary Condon, who had recently been murdered. He suggested that they write a story about, quote, women like her, end quote, who were, quote, promiscuous, end quote, and lived a double life. The man then went on to talk about Christy Mirak and the upcoming 10-year anniversary of her murder. The caller mentioned that he knew Christy's brother and that there was a barn on the Mirak property where Christy would, quote, take men. He went on to call Christy a derogatory name, saying that women like her didn't deserve to die, but what did they expect? The reporter quickly reached out to the police who contacted the FBI. Although it was too late to trace the call, the FBI believed that the caller was likely Christy's killer. The next big step in the case came in 2017 when investigators contacted Parabon Nanolabs, a DNA technology company. Using the DNA found on the scene, Parabon was able to create an image of what Christie's killer might have looked like at the ages of 25, 45, and 55. The images were released to the public in the hopes that someone would come forward after recognizing the faces. As it turns out, Parabon was able to do far more for the case than anyone thought possible. By 2018, Parabon had the technology needed to finally solve the 25-year-old cold case of Christine Mirak's murder. In an interview with Douglas Burig, the former director of the Bureau of Criminal Investigations for the Pennsylvania State Police, he explained to me the technology that went into solving this previously cold case. In the Mirak case, the killer had left behind DNA at the crime scene. That DNA was processed and uploaded uh, to search through the FBI CODIS database, but there were no matches in the system at the time. For more than a decade, people had been using commercially available genealogy websites to take a sample of their own DNA through a cheek swab, upload it to these sites to find lost relatives and to trace their family lineage. It was not until 2018 that law enforcement had decided to take DNA from crime scenes and upload it to these same databases to see if there were relatives of the person, the suspect, who left the DNA at that scene. The hopes were that by identifying a relative, it would ultimately lead to the identification of the suspect who committed the crime. And that's exactly what was done in the Murat case. The DNA was uploaded to the one of the commercially available genealogy websites. And we were fortunate that that DNA sample matched a very close relative 
that was in that database. In this case, it was his sister. From that point, a genealogical researcher began to establish the family tree, and we were quickly able to determine that it was likely only one male in that family could have committed this crime. After that, we needed to get a direct DNA sample to confirm this. So as part of an undercover operation, we obtained a DNA sample from the suspect, and the DNA lab was able to match it directly to the DNA left at the Mirac crime scene. And that's what gave us the probable cause to effect the arrest. At that time, it was only the third instance where this technique had been used to solve a homicide in the United States. Obviously, since then, there's been uh, a considerable number of cases that have been positively impacted by this technique. The murderer was named Raymond Rowe, known to the public as DJ Freeze. It was June 25th of 2018, and I was in a command post watching surveillance cameras that we had installed around Rowe's house waiting for the arrest. There was a lot of other state and local and federal law enforcement agencies there working together with me. Raymond Rowe was cutting his grass, and I watched Lancaster City police officers and Pennsylvania State Troopers pull up in front of his house and run into his front yard and place handcuffs on him. And at that moment, I knew that was the last time he was ever going to have freedom in his life. The same day, Lancaster DA Craig Stedman announced the arrest at a press conference. Today, we are announcing the arrest of Raymond Charles Rowe for the murder of Christy Mirak from December 21st, 1992. He is being charged with one count of criminal homicide by Detective Christopher Herb from my office, a Lancaster County Detective from the DA's office. He was arrested today at his home and will be taken to Lancaster County Prison. Uh, he will not be eligible for bail in this offense, offense for this offense. The public was immediately shocked, as the well-known DJ was a staple in the community. Rowe had DJed everything from proms to weddings, and for a time, he was the house DJ at the popular Chameleon Club. Everyone knew his name. Born in 1968, Rowe grew up as a break dancer and a house party DJ in Lancaster, attending McCaskey High School, but not graduating. Over the years, he would have four wives and move between Chile and Lancaster. He owned a retail store and started a DJ school, and ironically, he even hosted an anti-violence rally in Lancaster Square. Prior to his arrest, Rowe had only had a single run-in with the police. In 2001, the Chameleon Club was raided in search of underage drinkers, and Rowe was charged with disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. After that event, he went on to become a born-again Christian, but even that wasn't enough for him to step forward and admit to what he had done. The police quickly gathered more evidence in their case against Raymond Rowe. We found out that he, at the time, lived in the 400 block of East Chestnut Street. He worked at Service Master, which was actually just down the road from where Christie's uh, apartment was. It would have been a natural way for him to go from the city on Pitney Road to make a right at William Penn Way. He would have passed her apartment hundreds of times and seen her there. One of the things that we know she was doing at that time, and again, I can't prove this, that he saw her. But she, they would sunbathe outside of her apartment right there, right alongside the road that he would have, he would have been driving by. Again, I can't prove that he saw her there, but we can prove that she was sunbathing at the time on the road that he would have naturally driven by tons of times. In, a, in addition to that, uh, with him working in that proximity, 
Uh, we also uncovered as part of our investigation that in that time frame, in the spring and summer, uh, um, before she was murdered, and even a little bit later, there were three incidences of what you would, call, you would commonly describe as a peeping Tom at her apartment. Uh, we don't have her got a great description other than it was a male, but it does stand out to us. And again, I don't know whether he was the individual or not. I think many of us do think that, yeah, it probably was him and he was probably looking, but we can't prove that. He was driving at the time. He admitted that he was driving away to a Celica time. We actually obtained a picture from somebody in the family that there it is. There's the, there's the car in the background that he was driving. We had a number of other individuals who, who indicated, you know, a small car similar to a Dodge Daytona, which at that time, you look at the pictures, looked exactly like a Toyota Celica. There is still no real known connection between Raymond Rowe and Christy Mirak, but the police did find a Chameleon Club pass in Christy's pocket, signaling a possible connection between the two. For Douglas Burig and the whole Pennsylvania State Police, the arrest came as a relief. In some ways, it was surreal. I'd worked on this case in some capacity, helping, assisting for over 15 years. So to see the arrest, um, it was satisfying. I was glad that he wasn't going to be able to live his life normally anymore. Uh, most importantly, I was happy that he was going to be held accountable for what he had done to Christy Mirak. It was certainly one of the most brutal rape murders that I'd ever worked on in my career. My thoughts then immediately turned to her family, and I was wondering if they were going to be okay with the news and how shocking and bewildering it must be for them when they hear this. Uh, so I was very concerned about how they would feel and if they would be able to handle it. Although Roe has pleaded guilty, he has given us very little answers on what happened that December day. It's possible that Rose spotted Christy at the club one day and followed her home, but it's unlikely that anyone will ever know for sure. Lancaster DA, Craig Stedman stated, There's nothing to celebrate about anything like cases like this. Uh, you want to do what's right, do the right thing for the right reason, and we've done that today given all the circumstances, but there's no high-fiving of anybody. It's just, you know, these guys that can tell you what they're doing, what they're doing is moving on to another case. The family, of course, is going to deal with this, and, and uh, we're going to be there for them to the extent that, that we can. In the years since Raymond Rowe's arrest, the breakthrough technology that was used to solve the Mirac case has impacted other investigations with the Pennsylvania State Police. The use of genealogical DNA or forensic genealogy has had a significant impact on a lot of unsolved cases, previously unsolved cases. After the success in the Mirac case, the Pennsylvania State Police began to immediately look at all unsolved homicide cases that were currently being worked on to see if this technique could be applied. And we quickly identified uh, a large number of cases that it might be able to help in. And since the arrest in the Mirac case, this same technique has been used to solve uh, multiple other cases and still in the process of trying to solve uh, many others. In addition to homicide cases, this technique has been used to successfully resolve a number of sexual assault cases as well. In my opinion, the use of forensic genealogy represents a significant breakthrough that will lead to the successful resolution of countless cases that would not have been solved otherwise and get justice for victims and their families.
Even though the family will always have questions, they at least had the opportunity to confront the man that killed their sister and daughter. In court, Vince Mirak spoke to Roe. Quote, I've searched for who could do such a horrible thing. Who could do something so heinous to another person and walk away with no regret. Now I know who. You took away our joy, our security, our love for the Christmas holiday. Most of all, you took away our Christy. We struggle every day to get past the pain. I can only hope that the rest of your life is as painful for you as the last 26 years have been for our family. End quote. This episode of Jane Doe was written and hosted by Abigail Reese. Sources for this episode include WJL, news conferences recorded by Local 21, CBS News, WHP Harrisburg, and an interview conducted with Douglas Burig. Thank you for listening and subscribe to hear our next episode.